Last week, we looked at God's perfect timing. We looked at the arrest of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we're going to be looking at the beginning of the trial of the Lord. And we're going to see this combination of two men. Combination of the high priest and the apostle Peter. The high priest wants to convict Christ. He wants to put him to death. And it seems like he's going to be successful. Peter is there. He's trying to deliver the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to fail. But in actuality, they both fail because they're both moving forward in the flesh. Now, we look at this legal system, and, well, it was an unjust system in that they have preconceived notions on what they wanted to see, or at least see come to pass. Well, it was the Lord's desire. We saw this when we studied through Deuteronomy and Leviticus. We saw that it was the Lord's desire for the legal system in place that it would be fair and it would be just to all people. Justice, justice is a moral or absolute rightness, the upholding of what is fair and due in accordance with honor, standards, and righteousness. To achieve justice in our society, we have our legal system of judges, attorneys, and juries. We have worldwide United Nations such as it is. And even in the sporting field, we have instant replay. And I I say that kind of jokingly, but I say that seriously, because when you see something that happens that's not right, that you consider that's not just, that's not fair, it it just strikes you. It it strikes you in such a way that it just causes you to, to grieve inside when you see an injustice happen in somebody's life. Because of DNA testing, there's been some people that have been incarcerated for many years that have been found to be innocent and have been set free. And it's joyful they've been set free, but again, it, it touches your sense of justice in a, in a negative way just to see that they were incarcerated for all of those years when they ought not to have been. We saw this Easter season, justice demanded the cross before the resurrection. The price had to be paid, Christ overcoming sin before he could be resurrected, and then we in turn would follow through in resurrection as well. This is because a critical element of God's nature is that he is just. You have been made in the image of God. And so that's where we get that, that, that sense of justice within our, our lives, that rightness would ultimately prevail. Psalm 37 verse 28 says, For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. It's the essence of justice. The problem with society today is we've placed personal gain over that which is just, over that which is right. Unfortunately, in our society, cheating, lying, and lack of integrity have been accepted as long as you don't get caught, as long as it's not revealed. In Judges chapter 17, verse 6, we see the state of the land. I'm doing devotions in the in the book of Judges, and you're seeing this constant flip-flop of men seeking out the Lord. But then it starts to wane, and then the following generations, they turn away from the Lord, and they turn even after false idols and just doing the things that God had commanded them not to do. And then God raises up a ruler, a just man, a man who has a heart for the Lord and the things of the Lord, and then the people, he leads them in the ways of the Lord, and, and as they come back, then God once again blesses. Well, in Judges chapter 17, verse 6, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Pretty much an earmark of what we experience in our society today. 
many people doing what is right in their own eyes or doing what is good in their own heart. And we see that society, society because of it, is suffering the repercussions of it. So to this end, when Noah got off the ark, God established a covenant with him. A covenant in that man, man was going to be the Man was going to be God's agency in which he saw his law enacted and he saw justice done. A big part of that covenant was the establishment or the dispensation of human government. You see in Genesis chapter 9 verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. We see in the book of Romans chapter 13, we're not going to turn there, but we see that the governing authority is placed there by the hand of God. And so you can look at the person that is in office, regardless of the level, regardless of who that man is or his beliefs are, and just look at him as a reflection of where society is before a holy God. God thought it necessary to put that person in office for the betterment of a country, and sometimes it's going to be for the for the punishment of a country, but nonetheless you can see the state of the nation through the people that we put in office. That's why I encourage the church during election times, get your voter guides and understand understand who this candidate is and what this candidate believes. Get your Bible and understand and know what God believes or what God, God's position on the issues are and vote accordingly. Because as we go into the booth, who are we bringing into the booth? We're bringing the Holy Spirit into the booth. And ask that the Holy Spirit would guide you in the decisions that you make. And so, looking at the legal system that has been instituted by God, God's desire for a just legal system would be, first of all, that it would be fair. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 18 through 20. Keeping in mind... Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law just before God's people entered into the promised land. <coughs> Deuteronomy 16, 18, 20, You shall appoint judges and officers in all of your gates which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality nor take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God has given you. He's very clear on what his thoughts are. The justice system is to be truthful. Deuteronomy 19, verses 16 through 19. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry, and indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother, so you shall put away the evil from among you. God's desire is that a just legal system would also be sure. Deuteronomy 17.7 the hands of the witness shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people, so you shall put away the evil from among you. This is why Jesus told those accusing the woman of adultery in John 8, 7, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Why? 
It was an unjust situation. They were treating this woman unjustly, and the Lord, the Lord brought their hearts to light. Even today, the way our system is set up, it's set up that people are considered to be innocent until proven guilty. Why is that? Why is a person considered to be innocent until they're proven guilty? Why aren't they considered to be guilty and to be proven innocent? And I believe it's because of our sense of justice. We would just assume the guilty go free than have the innocent punished. In, in, in our minds, in our hearts, we would rather have a guilty person go free rather than have an innocent person to be punished. And so a person is considered to be innocent until he can be proven guilty. It's part of how God has created us that we would be a just people. So as a just system could not convict the Lord Jesus Christ, we saw great injustice, and that's what we'll be looking at of the day. Look at verses 12 and 14, 12 through 14, and then I'm going to skip down to verses 19 through 24. In verse 12, Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. He wasn't recognized Jesus as Christ. His mindset was that he would sacrifice Christ and not bring the wrath of Rome down upon the, 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 really the system that they had going at that time. Verse 19, the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And, he, and when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I had spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Rather than seeking out justice according to God, the desires of this man, Annas, was the priority. Now keep in mind, these are the Sadducees, not the Pharisees, but the Sadducees. These are the ones that had control over the temple. They had control over the temple and and the Jewish means of worshiping God. In essence, they had control over who could properly worship God and who couldn't. They added their traditions to such a degree that they were making quite a bit of money off the deal. And so here you are, let's just say you're a shepherd. It's time to worship the Lord. You're going to offer him a sacrifice. You go to your flock and you find a perfect lamb, a lamb without blemish. You take it up to the temple and they would have priests that would examine it just to make sure. Well, the problem was they would turn down your lamb, but it just so happens that they would have a lamb without blemish that they would sell to you. Well, they would sell it to you at exorbitant price, but the problem is they wouldn't take your money because your money wasn't good enough. It had to be the temple currency, and so you would have to go to the money changers. You would have to exchange your money. I don't know what the exchange rate was, but it was to the benefit of the people who ran the show. And then you would come, and then you could buy your lamb, and then by that time, you'd spent quite a bit of money, and then you could worship God and that you could make your sacrifice. So remember, we saw during this past resurrection season that before the 
crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, before the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, the only way I could deal with my sin was by the sacrifice. And so you had these people with the mindset, I have to make this sacrifice regardless of what it costs. And so you can imagine those who controlled the temple, they were making money hands over fist. Well, what did Jesus do when he came in and cleansed the temple? He, he, he caused damage to their operation that day. What was it would they were afraid of if rebellion should enter in and get Rome's, Rome's anger riled up? It was going to hurt their business. And so you see the mindset from which they are operating from. Now, Annas was the high priest for about four years when Rome decided at some point, this guy's got too much power, he's got too much influence. And so they removed him. And I don't know exactly how it works, but he had major influence still, and that Annas... He would be described today as, if you will, the godfather of high priests. Well, the position of high priest had become a puppet of his. So he still retained the power. He just didn't have the position or at least the title. And so for the purpose of lining his pockets, each of his five sons became high priests, one after another. And now the one who was in that position is his son-in-law. And so he kept control because he wanted to keep the income that was generated here. And so Jesus was brought before Annas and then to Caiaphas for the purpose of establishing charges worthy of death. Now, that was the purpose of establishing charges worthy of death. So presumed to be guilty, he would need to prove himself innocent. That's why the questioning that will be going on, and even before Pontius Pilate, But the mindset was, we're going into this for the purpose of establishing guilt. In Matthew 26, 59, Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Now we saw last week that God is doing the supernatural through the natural, using the natural state of the heart of men and the desire for himself to achieve God's purposes. We saw last week that God is definitely in control in that as soon as Judas and that contingent came into the garden and they asked, are you he? And Jesus said, I am he. If you look at verse six, it says, now when he had said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And as we looked at that, when they heard that I am, they drew back and they fell down to their face. Because there was just that moment, there was that bit of the glory of God that was revealed to them. And as they saw the glory of God, just through that statement, I am, they fell to their face. Whenever man stands before a holy God, well, he doesn't. He he falls to his, his face. Now, a council for the purpose of a trial would usually consist of 23 men of a local Sanhedrin or council. Now, These would be in the outlying villages. Eleven votes would be required for an acquittal and 13 for a conviction. This council in Jerusalem is the great Sanhedrin. This is consisting of 70 men and the high priest. Matthew 26, 59. Now the chief priest, the elders, and all the council were together. And so this is a conspiracy. They had talked about these things. They're looking. They're just looking for a means. They're looking for a way to convict and to crucify Christ. Why do they go through all of this? Because man's conscience. 
Man's conscience is the great convictor. It's the ear for the Holy Spirit, but they're trying to manipulate this in the flesh. And they're going through all of this show in order to present the fact that they could at least say that they went through this the right way and the proper through the proper steps because that's the thing man has to apart from god apart from salvation man has to do what he can do he has to justify himself in order to quiet the conscience because the conscience is that which screams the conscience is that which convicts and i think we saw a little bit of a picture of that with aaron hernandez you don't know who Aaron Hernandez is. He was the football player. He was convicted of murder. And um, I think it was about a year ago he was convicted of murder. And he got a life sentence without the possibility of parole. He was put on trial just recently for the murder, I believe, yeah, it was of two other men. But he was found innocent of that. He had the opportunity to see his family and, and whatnot while he was in the court. But then he was brought back to his jail cell. And can you, be a, can you imagine to be a person, to be in that cell, uh, he's in his 20s, somewhere around there, maybe early 30s, and knowing that you're going to be there for the rest of your life. And then what is it that you think about? I, obviously, I've never taken a life. But to, and he basically executed the man that he was convicted of killing. To look into the eyes of somebody, or at least upon somebody, and to take a life like that, that's just got to haunt you for the rest of your life. It's just got to vex your conscience to such a degree that how do you live with yourself? Now, I, I can imagine how a person would live with himself outside of jail and that, well, he could fill his life with things that would at least sear his conscience. But here this man has access to nothing. And I imagine his conscience just got the best of him. And if you heard the news, he committed suicide this week. And it's just so sad and it's just so, so tragic. But we see that what they're doing here, what this council is doing, they're trying to soothe their conscience. Now, three times in the Bible, we see the ideal man in the ideal situation, and each time we see the futility of mankind. Adam. In Adam, we see man in the most perfect of circumstances. He's in the Garden of Eden. He has intimate fellowship with God, walked with God in the, in the cool of the day. And the only thing that God demanded... Now, we talk about keeping the Ten Commandments and none of us can. And then we can expand it further than that. There's 613 commandments. How many commandments were there when Adam was in the Garden of Eden? There was one commandment. He only had to do one thing. Just think, if we could whittle it all down, you know, trying, you know if, we were of, we're not, if we were of the mindset... Uh, of, of obtaining right standing before God to be justified by God through our actions and God just gave us one commandment and you would think that you could do that but the proof of the matter is you can't and I would imagine that was just such an attractant that tree and, and it probably was something that anytime they walked by it and they probably walked by it quite regularly because well, you can just see the manifestation in this, and as you tell a child not to go somewhere and not to do something, they're sure to go in that direction. Well, it was the same thing with Adam. He had the best-case scenario, and still he fell. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. There has to be a change within sight of you. There has to be the preaching of the Word, and there has to be the power of the Holy Spirit that transforms who you are and brings you into that new creation in Christ. 
you see this man, Caiaphas, he, he's in this perfect position. Again, he, he's in the temple. He, he's got the rich history of, uh, of Israel and what God has done. And still, this man's going to fail because of the flesh. And now, enter in this other man, the Apostle Peter. Apostle Peter, leader of the Twelve, the one who has spent time under the direct teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. When, when the Lord had something special to teach, and if he was just going to teach his, the core group, well, it was Peter, James, and John, but Peter was part of that. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he got to see the glory of Christ, still not completely understanding it, but nonetheless brought in. When Christ asked, who do men say that, that I am? And he, he reiterated what he had heard. And then Jesus said, who do you say that I am? He acknowledged him as being Messiah. But still, he did not have the Holy Spirit. And as he did not have the Holy Spirit, in this case here, he was still destined to fail. Not only does he fail, but his sense for justice is, ends up being for self-preservation rather than the promises of victory that he had made for Jesus Christ, his promises of delivering Christ. Now, if Annas was the example of man's worst, then Peter is the example of man's best, but ultimately they both bring failure. So let's look at verses 15 through 18, then 25 through 27. It says, And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. We believe this to be the Apostle John. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus to the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers who had made a fire of coal stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Look over at verse 25. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative, relative of Malchus, of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Now it was... It was definitely a rooster that crowed, so don't get me wrong on this. But really, in that rooster, what was it doing? It was setting off his conscience. It was setting off his conscience. He made rich promises before Christ. He told Christ, far be it that they will, that, that they will crucify you. He, he, he even told Christ that he would give of his life in the place of Jesus Christ, which was an impossibility. But again, he, in the flesh... In the flesh, he made so many promises and, and, and he thought so much of himself and his abilities. But when it came down to the Lord, he denied the Lord. And we can look down at Peter and say what a bad person he is. But how is it when you're out there in the world? Especially when the world is raging against the Lord. Especially when you have a crowd of unbelievers around you and there's an opportunity. Now, most of, you know, rarely do they say, you know, are you one of his disciples and you say no. But how many times have you been in the situation or circumstance when God has had you in that situation and, and, and he, he's, he's, he spurred you on to speak something, to, to share the gospel somehow or, or, or some way? 
And how many times have, have you failed? Leaving the church, maybe, or maybe sitting in your devotion, and Lord, just bring me an unbeliever today. But how, how many times has he maybe brought you an unbeliever, somebody that was ripe for salvation, that God had spoken to you in a group of people, and you were concerned of what the group of people would think? Matthew Henry said, Those that warm themselves with evildoers grow cold towards just people and God's things, and those that are fond of the devil's fireside are in danger of the devil's fire. Now, there are a few commendable things about the Apostle Peter here. Apostle Peter did believe in all of his heart and the things that he said, but the problem here is he's coming to the realization of his limitations. So the first thing he did was at least he followed the Lord. Once again, now, there was that other disciple that was there, regardless of whoever it was, but where was everybody else? I mean, Judas we can take out of the equation, but where were the other, where were the other nine? There, there's Peter. Peter, again, he was always quick to react. You know, remember the time when they were in the storm and, and, and Jesus came walking upon them and they were frightened, they were, they were scared to death of the storm and now they're believing they're seeing a ghost, but then Peter's recognizing him. He says, Lord, if that's you, call me to come to you. And, and Jesus did and he got out of the boat and the, the scripture tells us he walked on the water. Not very fast, because the storm got the best of him, and he realized what he was doing. Then he sunk like a rock. But maybe it was just for a second. Peter could later say, you guys didn't get out of the boat. I walked on the water. I walked on the water. And the reason he walked on the water is because he had faith in Jesus Christ. Now, he just had little faith in Jesus Christ, because, again, the storm overcame that pretty quickly. But have you ever walked on the water? Don't go out into a lake and try to walk across the lake. That's not what I'm talking about. Just doing something that is beyond you because God told you to do it. And maybe take that same illustration and take it into the arena of victory. That God told you to speak and you did speak and you saw somebody be saved or somebody get come back to Christ or whatever it might be. And you knew that it was beyond you, but you just knew that God had called you to do it. And, and just for that moment... You walked on water. You did something beyond your, your, your limitations, beyond your ability. And again, if you keep your eyes on Christ, you'll be able to do that, which you never thought possible. And so at least Peter was always there. Now again, he's going to fail, but you know what failing, failure is? It's an opportunity for learning. Peter is going to learn his lesson, and Peter's going to do the miraculous. He said he was going to give his life so Christ wouldn't die, but because Christ did die, sent the Holy Spirit, Peter was going to give of his life for the Lord in that regard. And I wonder how much are we willing to do. And so Peter, he was about to fail, but he failed in a situation where none of the other disciples even dared to face. The reason we hear so much about Peter in the gospel, because he was front and center, saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing many times, but at least he was proactive in his Christian faith. If we would continue, I, I don't know that we're going to go into the book of Acts on Thursday night, probably not, but there was a man, the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul was proactive in what he believed to be true. On Wednesday mornings when we do our men's study, um, we, we just saw Stephen's discourse, and as they were gnashing their teeth at Stephen and preparing to stone him, there was Saul, that was the Apostle Paul, 
he was there because he believed. He believed he was doing the right thing. He believed he was doing service for God. He was a man who was passionate. And what did God do? God arrested that passion on, on the road to Damascus. God got a hold of him, spent about 16 years preparing him, and then turned the world upside down through the ministry of that man. And Peter, again, Peter was good raw material at this time, pre-Holy Spirit. He was proactive in his Christian faith so that when he was filled with the Holy Spirit, it wasn't a big deal for him to stand up in Acts and deliver that 3,000-soul sermon. And then he stood up again and delivered the 5,000-soul sermon. This was a man who did amazing things just simply because... He's learned his lessons that we see in his failures in the gospel. He ended up emerging victorious. And so at least he followed the Lord. At least he was front and center. A second commendable thing about Peter is is that he loves the Lord. God will do a lot with that. He has a heart for the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants, to be, he wants to be in his presence. He wants to be there. I mean, Peter's forsaken common sense and personal safety, and the presence of the Jews are there, all for the purpose of being close to Christ. And again, he's a man who is definitely afraid of these people, not understanding the whole situation, but he's there. And then thirdly, remember Peter's confession to the Lord, Mark fourteen thirty one. but he spoke more vehemently, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Now, he couldn't, he wouldn't, but he wanted to. He had the heart to. Peter did not understand this whole salvation process and the necessity of Christ to die for his sins, but he loved the Lord to such a degree, he didn't want to see the Lord. He knew what would happen in crucifixion. He didn't want the Lord to go walking off into that by himself. He didn't know what he had to offer, well, other than himself. And so he offered himself to the Lord. Now, we're going to close our study tonight looking at Peter's formula for failure. Where did Peter fail? This formula will work in any spiritual endeavor that you undertake. It's a four-step program. Number one, if you want to fail, place your confidence in what you are able to do what you have done, or what you desire to do. Do not forget that you are not God. Subscribe to the thought that you can do anything if you put your mind to it, that you can win through intimidation, and God helps those who help themselves. In Matthew twenty-six thirty-three, it says, Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. So many times, you know, well... As a man, as a young boy, being raised by my father apart from Christ, that's how I was taught. I was taught you've got to go and make something of yourself. I was taught to be self-sufficient. I looked at my dad. When my dad needed to do something, he would work harder. He would put more time and more effort, and he would make it happen. And that spoke volumes to me. I'm the kind of person that I just don't give up. I'll just keep pressing and pressing and pressing, knowing that at some point I can prevail over a situation. That's not always a good thing, because sometimes I leave Christ behind, and Christ will allow me to push against the wall until I give up or the wall falls down upon me. But we need to understand that God takes that proactive person, but not apart from Christ, not apart from the will of God. 
And that's what Peter's doing because, see, Peter says that he, he's going to die in the place of Christ. The problem with that is then the price for sins are not paid. This is just an emotional outburst from the apostle Peter not understanding the truth and the reality of what needed to happen in Christ. Secondly, if you want to fail in spiritual endeavors, deny the Lord's assessment of your nature. Subscribe to the thought, if I'm strong, I can do anything. I'm invincible. I can stand strong in the face of adversity. In Revelation 3.17, it says, Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do you not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? Never forget that evaluation of yourself, apart from Christ. Never forget that evaluation. Apart from him, what did we see in chapter 15? You can, you can do nothing. You can do nothing of any spiritual significance apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, Peter's there for a lot of good motives. He's got good intentions, but nonetheless, he's fallen short of what he's going to be able to do. Jesus is assessment of Peter's nature in Matthew 26 34 Jesus said to him and surely I say to you that this night before the rooster crows you will deny me three times can you imagine when he heard that rooster crow how that had to vex his heart how that had to affect his soul he's realizing and I believe this is what's ultimately drove him as we'll see at the end of the gospel of John when he says I'm going fishing I'm going back to the old I failed I, I thought I could do this, and I thought I could do that, but I can't. But it was at that point that Christ had him. It's at the point of human failure that God has us exactly where we need to be because it's then that we understand the necessity for him in our life. If you want to fail in your spiritual endeavors, sleep through times of spiritual preparation. And this is a big one, fail to pray. Fail to pray. Just react in the flesh when God speaks to you and tells you to do something just react in the flesh everything's got to be done through seeking the lord out in prayer even the things that you emphatically know that god has called you to do even if it's a good work that is kind of a slam dunk if you will just sitting right before you pray about that because things don't always seem as they as they look if you want to fail spend more time in the movies watching tv secular publications spend more time on the internet, spend more time talking to people than you spend talking to God. How, 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 what proportion of time do you spend, and, and again, we're all convicted by this, what proportion of time do you spend speaking to God versus basically anything else? Well, so we'll, we'll spend four or five hours a night watching TV, and at the very least, just before we close our, our eyes, we'll, we'll give a 10-second prayer. I mean, do we really understand the privilege that prayer is? Do we understand how Christ died to open up the ears of God in the throne room of heaven in order for us to pray and for our prayers to be heard? Do we understand that we're praying to Lord God of the universe who spoke all that we see into existence just simply through his word? Do we truly understand the power that is in prayer? See, most people, they're more of the mindset of Peter. They think prayer. Prayer? There's a prayer meeting at church? I'd love to go to that prayer meeting at church, but the problem with the prayer meeting at church is there's other people, and as I'm sitting there, they're going to hear me pray, and they're probably not going to think much of me or much of how I pray. I'm not quite as elegant as other people. I don't know if I'll be praying the right thing. 
as long as you're talking to God, and especially if you're praying along the will of God, if you're well-versed in the Scriptures, and even if you're just partially versed, if you will, in the Scriptures, just speak to God. So many times people are intimidated because they're directing their prayers to the other people that are there. And we're not praying to each other. We're praying to God. Who am I to evaluate anybody's prayer? This is personal time between a person and their Lord. In Luke 22, 31 through 32, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon. Again, he refers to him not as Peter, Peter. That's the name that he gave him. Simon, Simon is his name of the flesh. Indeed, Satan has asked for you. And again, I can imagine when Peter heard that. Uh-oh. Satan has asked for me that he may sift you as we, but, but I have prayed for you, that the Lord Jesus Christ prayed for him, that your faith should not fail. Well, it sure seemed like it failed for a period of time, but Jesus says, and so again, you know, Jesus says, I prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and you think, okay, well then I'm going to be going on for the rest of my life, I'm going to be skipping down the yellow brick road. Jesus prayed for me that my faith would not fail. But then the Lord says, and when you have returned to me, I'd be thinking, what? wait a minute. You prayed that my faith would not fail, and when I returned, that means I walked away. Yeah, he didn't pray that his faith would not be tested. Our faith is always going to be tested. But we need to, as Jesus did, pray that we would be strengthened through the power of his might. And he says, as you've learned these lessons, and it's exactly what happened, and, and when you had returned to me, strengthen your brethren. And Peter has been strengthening the brethren throughout the church age through the written word and through the, the obedience to what God has called them to do. Who is it that you have influence over? I mean, it's, it's an easy one. Just look in your home, but even outside the home. But nonetheless, if you're a born-again believer, somebody is looking to you as a mature Christian. And so keep yourself in prayer. Pray for others and understand that there's going to be failures in your life, but also know that when you return, you've got opportunity to strengthen others. I've seen that in the trials in my life. Lord, why is this happening to me? But when God delivers me from them, some long, some short, a lot of the times it's preparation for the ministry to other people. Peter, Peter can be a man of compassion to those who failed because he himself had failed. And then lastly, if you want to be a failure in your spiritual endeavors, place yourself in that position to fail. You do not have to touch a fire to get burnt. You just need to get close. Think that you can stop just after one. Lie to yourself that you can just walk away at any time. Think that it could never happen to you. Peter, Peter, if you notice at verse 16, he's standing at the door. In verse 18, he seeks the comfort of the world with the world. And then in verses 25 through 27, he finds himself denying that he even knows the Lord. Peter, we, we looked at some good points of being there, but should Peter have been there? What was he hoping to accomplish? He accomplished absolutely nothing. He failed but the Lord uses our failures. The results, verse 27, Peter then denied again, and immediately the rooster crowed. In Matthew 26, 74, that word denial is pretty strong. It says, then he began to curse and to swear, saying, I do not know the man. 
and immediately a rooster crowed. That word swear, it can be defined along the lines of, may God kill me and send me to hell if I am lying. You, you can see the impact of the fear had upon his life and how he was overwhelmed about what might happen to him. This man who was so quick, I'm going to give of my life. Now all of a sudden, when his life could be required of him, he understands the reality of it all. He was willing to lop off Malchus's ear when Malchus's back was turned to him, but now when it's time to face the fire, he's unable to do it. But thank God, Christ, Christ is, has his face set like flint towards that cross. He's got his face set like flint towards that cross so that all of us would not perish but have everlasting life so that we can stand strong and be that witness for Jesus Christ. Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, I'll close with this. He says, You therefore, beloved brethren, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the air of the wicked. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. And so Peter understands somebody's self, uh, uh, st- own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. He understands all of this, but he also understands grace and to grow in the knowledge of grace for the times that you fail because, behold, God still desires to use you anyway. Peter is a man who is enabled to minister to those of us who fail. Those of us who thought we had great faith and understand as all we have is little faith, Peter, in essence, could say, that's enough because that's all I had and it was enough for the Lord Jesus Christ to be glorified in and through my life. Father, once again, we just thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for these rich examples that we have. Father, we need very few examples of the godless. We just need to look around ourselves as we're out in the world. But how much more so as we see this man, Peter. This man, Peter, who has a lot of the same intents that we have. This man, Peter, who thought he had great faith. And a lot of times we think that we have great faith. But when tested, we can so be found lacking. This man, Peter, who received grace upon grace. And understanding that God, just as surely as you gave him grace, you give us grace as well. May we stand strong in your grace. And this man, Father, who was used in mighty ways and many lives, that Lord, he was just a common fisherman and we're common people and we can be used in great ways as well. And so, Father, just strengthen us through the power of your might. And Father, it was about your, your, your death and your resurrection, Father, that has set us free, but they have set us free for your work and for your will. And I pray, Father, as we have been set free indeed, that, Father, we would be a people who are found faithful. I pray, Father, that we would not be afraid of man, but we would have a fear of our God, that we would be obedient, Lord, to all that you have called us to. We just thank you, Lord, for what you had done this past weekend. But, Father, we so look forward to what you want to do in the future, that, Lord, you would just simply be glorified through our humble efforts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? Well, we've been going through a series of studies leading up to our celebration of the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We finished Philemon, which was the next of the epistles that we were studying. So starting this Sunday morning, we're going to be studying the book of Hebrews. And so 
come out and join us on Sunday morning. Um, Sunday evening, we're going to put a hold on our verse-by-verse studies, and we're going to be looking at the Way of the Master. Way of the Master is a video series that shows us how to go out and share our faith out in the streets. Ray Comfort, and I can't remember the other guy's name. Kurt Cameron. Um, It's a video series that they put together, and it's really quite effective. I've used it before myself. If you're thinking, well, you know, to go and share my, you know, a lot of times we say, go and share your faith, and you're left wondering, well, how do I, how do, I do that? Especially if just going up to somebody cold, how do I do that? Well, he just gives you some icebreakers. It's not this well-defined way that you do step A, B, and C, but he just takes biblical concepts and shows us how to do it. That's what we'll be doing on Sunday evening. God bless you guys. Have a pleasant rest of the week.